Well, hello and welcome again to a further Climate Talks. I'm your host, Peter Viss. I'm a senior advisor at Rudd Peterson Public Affairs, and I'm delighted again to be continuing the conversation I've had before with Jill Duggan, who's the executive director of Environmental Defence Fund Europe. So thanks for joining me again, Jill. Thank um, you. We're going to talk a bit about the US climate summit that took place last week. What's your take on it? I'm really pleased. I think initially I was a bit sceptical that the Biden administration were trying to get their NDC and get everything out the door very early within the first 100 days. But I think Kerry's diplomacy and using John Kerry as the sort of diplomatic push on this has been a stroke of brilliance. I think he's filled a bit of a vacuum, let's say, with the pandemic and other issues. The UK hosts of COP26 have not been doing the visible diplomacy globally that's required when you're trying to step up ambition. And this is one of those ambition cops that we're coming to. So seeing John Kerry, who's known internationally, known for being a champion of climate change, seeing him prepared to fly around the world to do this diplomacy, I think has been very important. And then the kind of summoning to the Biden summit definitely elicited a scramble for things to say from a number of states. Not all of them were ready, and we can talk about that maybe in a bit, but definitely some of them recognised that they needed to turn up with something. And for others, I think it was probably a very uncomfortable moment when they turned up with nothing. But what did the US turn up with? I mean, could you just give us a quick synopsis? Well, um, I'll do my best, but basically the headline figures, the, the US turned up with an ambition, a 2030 target to reduce emissions by at least 50%, 50 to 52% on a 2005 baseline. And there have been a lot of graphs flying around saying, how does that compare with the EU's ambition to reduce by 2030 at least 55% on a 1990 baseline? The UK has come out with its at least 68% by 2030. And there's a lot of, you know, smoke and mirrors around the level of ambition. But I think at the end of the day, we can say they're roughly comparable. I had heard, yes, the UK was one among many who increased their level of commitments so far. The other, well, there were Japan, Canada, but in particular, the European Union too, brought to the climate summit last week the fact that they have now agreed politically the at least 55% target in 2030, which hadn't been done before, the agreement anyway, between our EU institutions. So that's pretty good. Is that where it stops? A few sort of raising of ambition, nice declarations? For me, no. there's quite a bit missing. No. No, of course not. And actually, of course, one of the one of the states that turned up saying that they were going to increase their spend on the environment was Brazil and President Bolsonaro, who the next day actually cut spending on the environment. So one of the points of, of this is to see where everybody is, for everybody else to see where everybody else is, you know, is his his or her number bigger than mine is very important. Um, but I think also for citizens to be able to say, okay, well, you said that, and now we've got it, you know, only yesterday you said that, and you've done something different. So to really understand where their governments lie and whether they're matching their ambition with their um, implementation, and clearly for some, they just aren't. And were there policy announcements as well by the US? Did you hear of any 
No, to be honest, um, I think there, there were mentions of things. And I think one of the issues that, uh, and they did publish a lot more than I've read, I'm going to be honest about that. But I think one of the issues that the US has to overcome is there's a great deal of skepticism about with a finely balanced um, Senate, whether they're going to be able to pass legislation. Of course, in the US, some of these things do need to be dealt with at a federal level. Many of them are dealt with at a state level, and we've seen climate leadership, for example, from California, but other states as well, and also from business. And you know, when Trump took the US out of the Paris Accord, many of the businesses um, were together in We Are Still In, pledging to actually continue on a climate neutral pathway. And of course, the reason for that is that for business um, these days, it's far better for them to have something relatively certain to invest against. If you've got somebody saying, well, we're not doing any of this stuff, well, you kind of think, well, is that, how long is that going to last? And it's very difficult to invest against it. Globally, I'm, I'm delighted that the US is back and they're coming in with their new NDC. Um, and there's a sense of optimism. Um, but we've been here before. I mean, if you remember, George W. Bush withdrew or did, didn't ratify the Kyoto Protocol. Um, eventually, uh, Obama came along and made great speeches at his inauguration about climate change. And then they left again. They left the Paris Agreement again. So, you know, frankly speaking, who's to say the US isn't going to leave again in four or five years' time? I mean, isn't that I a think, big... It, I, I think that's an important point. A bit, you know, their politics are a bit sort of extreme, back and forth. But one of the more encouraging things is think about what's happened in the United States, even during the Trump administration, is the amount of investment in fossil fuels declined enormously because, you know, precisely my point, why would you? You don't know what's going to come next. So why would you? The idea of the, what used to be called carbon leakage, where companies would move around the world to try and find the least onerous climate regimes is you know, becoming a thing of the past because you, where would you go? And actually, you're better off going somewhere where you know that it's as stringent as it's going to be because at least you know what you've got then. Whereas if you're going to some uh, a country that's trying to pretend it's not happening, then you're going to be faced with step changes that might be very difficult to deal with. And I thought one of the things that stood out for me was Australia's lack of contribution. They talked a lot about the fact that they've reduced their emissions by 19%, which, you know, you compare that to a lot of Europe, I think the UK will say that they've reduced their emissions by 45% since 1990. It doesn't look great, but it also looks like they've missed the point. This is not what about what you've done. This is about what you're going to do now. And in particular, the interesting thing about the targets they're looking at now is they're for 2030. They're in the next few years. This isn't kicked off into 20 years time. This is what needs to happen now. You mentioned Australia. Um, were there other, any other countries that um, were noticed for not doing very much? I've, I've heard some comment about Russia talking about carbon capture and sequestration and, and China. What did they say? Well, China, and I understand from colleagues in China that the um, script published in China was rather different from the script delivered, but they said that they would be strictly controlling coal use in this current 14th five-year plan and then declining it in the next 14 to five year plan. I think we'd all hope for something very robust and very clear on what they were doing 
in their Belt and Road Initiative, where they're investing in a, a number of countries around the world. And something really clear about not encouraging the use of fossil fuels as they invest in developing countries. And it wasn't as clear as it could be. There was a lot of ambiguity, I thought, around the Chinese statement. But then as somebody else has pointed out to me, why would the Chinese present the Americans with a lovely statement like that? They'll want to do it in their own time and on their own terms. Yeah, I mean, why make someone else's event even bigger? We've got a lot to be proud proud of in Europe um, because we've basically never been leaving these international agreements. We've stayed with them since the beginning and we're consistently uh, delivering reductions year by year. Uh, and indeed, we've not only got these high-level targets, but we've got the policies and the carbon pricing that reflect them, which I think is all, all, all well and good. And I think that's the the sort of next phase of action has to be surely about policies and implementation of these high-level targets. Was the UK upstaged a bit by the fact that the US, all the, all the glory seemed to go to the US? Uh, it's well, the UK hosting the COP, isn't it? Well, the UK is hosting the COP and, and, you know, in an ideal world, they presumably wanted to be the ones seen flying around the world doing this climate diplomacy, but they've made their choices and they've you know, in the way they've set up their, their development of the COP. And I think they must be also quite grateful to John Kerry for actually instilling some dynamism into the, the efforts and certainly some apparent dynamism. I don't want to do down my former colleagues in the UK. It could be that they've been doing loads behind the scenes that I've not been aware of. But actually what you need right now is some very visible diplomacy. And I think that's what John Kerry has provided and what President Biden has provided by hosting that summit so early and making it absolutely clear that this is top of his agenda. And I think we're all really pleased with that. I think certainly many states and, you know, you can look at Europe and the UK and Norway and other places around the world that are doing very well anyway on, on tackling this, but it is a global issue. And then there are the ones and we've talked about some of them, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Australia, Brazil, that have was some, somewhat hiding behind the Trump administration's lack of action on this. And it sent a really clear signal that, you know, there is nowhere to go on this. And I think one of the things that we will see develop over the next few years, probably de definitely uh, not generally in time for, for COP26, is the idea that you have to police this implementation, the, the amount of transparency you get. And I think what we're seeing is an increasing willingness of countries to say, I'm not going to buy from you. I'm not going to have a trade agreement with you unless you tackle some of these issues within your borders. And I think that will become more common. Europe, of course, is discussing the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is a complicated and at the moment we don't know whether it's going to be effective or what level it will be set, but certainly an attempt to deal with some of these issues. But I think, you know, in the long run, trade and access to markets is clearly going to be one of the tools that's used internationally to try and squeeze out those the free riders in the world that are trying to get away with doing nothing. But I mean, you know, the other thing, of course, being if you're Saudi Arabia or you're Australia and you heard the the pledges from South Korea about not investing in new coal and you know, certainly getting that feeling that China's going in that direction as well, you're seeing your markets disappear. And you yeah. need to change your business plan if you're Australia, if you're Saudi Arabia, if you're Russia, in order to continue to have a vibrant economy into the, you know, the middle of this century. Beyond the 2050, when we're not buying fossil fuels in Europe anymore, presumably. Mm -hmm. 
well, yeah. all in, one would hope, in China, Japan. Of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, well, thanks very much for this resume of uh, what happened last week. It sounds as if we've just started a whole load of more work, which, of course, is just what the climate needs. Thanks yeah. a lot, Jill. Very Thank best. You.